You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, as you have a seat, good morning. Everyone feeling well rested? A whole extra hour? Raise your hand if you usually go to 11, but you're here today because your schedule was thrown off. Just a couple. Okay, good. I was concerned because there's so many of us and I'm hoping that all the 11 didn't come here and we might as well not even do the last one. So uh, if we haven't met, my name is Clint, one of the pastors on staff, and I'm thankful uh, that you are here this morning because I believe that God wants to speak to us through Hebrews chapter 12. And so as you're turning there, I think this is week 14 of our series, Walking Through This Letter of the Hebrews. And again, I do hope that you feel well, well rested because we're going to need it. Uh, and you're going to see what I mean by that here in a minute. <clears throat> One of the ways, or rather reasons, why we preach through books of the Bible is because we believe what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, uh, should be on the screen, it says this, that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man, that Greek word is, is where we get our English word anthropology, it just means people. So the word of God is given to us that the people of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. If you have a different translation, instead of breathed out here, all scripture is breathed out, your Bible might say what? All scripture is inspired is the primary other translation. And that's fine, I don't think it's, I think breathed out is better because this phrase in the original language is actually two Greek words pushed together. It's the only time it's used in the Bible. The first half of the word means God, would you expect? The second half is the word for wind. It's also uh, what they use to describe breath. And so the point here, when the Bible says that all scripture is breathed out or inspired, it's not like an artist or a painter or a musician. They see something or hear something and then they're inspired to go and create something else. That's not what's happening. The Bible's saying that these are not God's, they are God's inspired words, even though they're written by human authors. These are God's words himself, right? God's words given to us to show us and declare his character and his nature. These words are from him. Philippians 1 says, um, that it, or, or here in 2 Timothy 3, it talks about th- these words to teach us, given to us to teach us and to train us. And the way Paul says in Philippians is that it teaches us how to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus came, lived, died in our place, rose again, overcoming sin and death, so that you and I, through faith in Christ, might forever have security of eternal salvation. And the Bible's saying, these words are given to us to show us how to live in light of that. The Christian life is a life lived in light of the good news of the gospel. And these words, 2 Timothy 3 says, they're given to us to show us how to live that life and to correct us when we are not walking worthy. And so we preach through books of the Bible because all scripture is breathed out by God. And church, we need it all. We need the words from Jesus that are easy to hear. Uh, Matthew 11 comes to mind, come to me all who labor, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. We need that. We also need words from Jesus that are difficult to hear, like Hebrews chapter 12. Again, we'll see that in a moment. We preach through books of the Bible because we need it all. And when I say we, I mean you and me, right? I'm talking about our church because this, this is, these are the people who we've locked arms with and said, we're gonna follow Jesus together. We're gonna help each other pursue this type of life that's worthy of the gospel. I'm thinking about us, but I'm also talking about the church everywhere. Every Christian everywhere. Um, and, and I say that because I wanna say this, a seriousness about the Bible is not just good for some Christians. And I think we think about it that way sometimes. Here's what I mean. Um, Wednesday morning 
after I got ready for work, I came out and my wife was sitting at the table and she was feeding our youngest breakfast. And she had Christmas music blaring, okay? I mean, it was playing, okay? Um, and it's not surprising if you know my wife, but she was going for it. Um, my baby somehow, she like dances with one hand. The rest of the kids are singing and playing, you know, and skipping around. They're just loving Christmas music. So I walk out, and I'm not a Scrooge or anything, but I do think Thanksgiving has its place. Anyone else? Okay. So I walk out. I didn't say anything because I know better, but I looked at my wife, and with my eyes, I said, seriously? You know, like, we're really doing this? I'm not kidding you. We were trick-or-treating 10 hours ago, Okay. It's too soon, all right? And no judgment if you're, you know, you're like Lowe's, you put your Hobby Lobby, you put your Christmas stuff out in December. Um, no judgment there, but I think it's too soon. Um, so I look at her, I didn't say anything, but I, I gave her that look seriously, and she goes, don't. It's November 1st, okay? Like, it's fine for us to do this. So the point there is there's a spectrum for people. We all love Christmas, and I'll get there eventually, Okay, November 1st is too soon for me, but there's a spectrum. And I think that's a, a lot of how we think about the Christian life where you go, there are some people who are real serious and they read their Bible and they pray and they're real serious about their faith and, and pursuing Christ's likeness and putting sin to death in their life. And then there's some other people and they're Christians for sure because they come to church and they believe in God and everything, but they just take a, a lot more casual approach to the whole thing, right? And don't get me wrong. The Bible does teach that as we pursue Jesus, as we follow him in our life, we should, we will be growing in maturity. So in this room right now, there is a whole spectrum of maturity levels when it comes to followers of Jesus. That is true. But the Bible gives absolutely no category for casual Christianity. Jesus is either the king of your life or he's not. And there's no in between. He is either the king of your life or he's not, and there's no in between. And if he is the king of our lives, then these words from him should be our ultimate authority. And we need them all. And so we preach through books of the Bible. It's why we get fired up about the work of Bible translation. Because like Tim mentioned earlier, I know all of you were listening. Um, like Tim mentioned earlier, there are people on the planet who do not have these words in their language. And we, on the other side of the planet, most of them, we get to invest financially, partner with organizations who are gonna do the work of translating God's word into a language, language where it does not currently exist. That's awesome. We get to do that. We've done this seven times. I wanted to bring this to show you. This is our, our, our seventh project that's coming up next Sunday that we're gonna give our entire offering to. Uh, it's for a people group, a cluster of people groups in Uganda. You're gonna hear more about this next week. But I brought this today because this is the New Testament in, uh, for our first project that we did. And it's for a people group in China. So seven years ago, this New Testament didn't exist in this language, but because we were faithful and, and gave and trusted God, it does, it exists now. And I, you know what, I can't read it. It's for a people group in China, I can't read it. I can't even tell you the name of the language, but you know who can? They can, they can, and that's awesome. Um, again, we need all the words of God, the ones that are easy to hear and the ones that are, like we'll see today, are more difficult for us to hear. So we're gonna pick up Hebrews 12. We're gonna start in verse one. I know Tim covered this last week. We're gonna overlap a bit. Hebrews 12, verse one says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, here's why, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we've mentioned this several times in this sermon series, but this letter is actually not really a letter, it's more like a sermon. And it's a sermon that's written to a group of Christians who had begun to experience hostility in their lives because of their faith in Christ. Now you need to understand that. Their lives had gotten difficult directly correlated to the fact that they put their faith in Jesus and began to follow after him. And we saw some examples of that back in chapter 10. Some of them were being mistreated. They were publicly mocked. Some of them had been thrown into prison for their faith in Jesus. Some of them had had their property stolen or plundered as they were going to care for their brothers and sisters in faith who were in prison. Some of them were being ostracized in the community to the point where they weren't able to do business and their livelihoods were at stake. And again, all of this was a direct result of the fact that they had placed their faith in Jesus and begun to follow him with their lives. So naturally, the result there is that they were being tempted to walk away from Jesus. They were tempted to give up on him. And this is why uh, the author of Hebrews writes this letter. And I think it's easy from our perspective to give them a hard time for that. Like, how could you be so nearsighted? Why would you give up on Jesus so easily? But honestly, I don't think we can blame them because these people, just like you and me, we have and had expectations about what a life as a Christian would be like. And they had expectations of what it would be like. But this wasn't it. What they were experiencing was not what they expected. And so these people had these expectations and they were thinking in their heads, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, if he is the perfect son of God who came to take away the sin of the world and to not only take the sin away but to restore what sin had broken, then why are our lives so much harder when we're following him? This is what they're wrestling with, right? Have you ever been there? You got to the point where life, for whatever reason, just wave after wave after wave, just blow after blow, and you go, God, why? Why does this keep happening? I'm doing everything I know to do. I'm following you. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm going to church. I'm tithing. I'm giving. I'm loving my neighbor. I'm on and on. And yet we ask God, why? And so the author of Hebrews writes this sermon to encourage them not to give up. It is a 13-chapter sermon about endurance. It is about holding fast to Jesus because Jesus is better. That's the summary we've been given of this whole book. Jesus is better. And that's what we've seen so far, isn't it? 11 chapters so far we've covered. 11 chapters of Jesus is better, don't give up. Chapter one, he's better than angels, don't give up. He's better than Moses, don't give up. He's a better high priest, don't give up. He provides for us through his high priestly ministry better access to God, so don't give up, hold fast to Jesus, draw near to him. And after 11 chapters of that just theology, Jesus is better, don't give up, he finally, in chapter 12, turns his attention to address their suffering, to address the pain that they were experiencing and to help them understand how Jesus could be better when it didn't seem like their lives could get much worse. Um, and what, they, what he says about their pain is not what I think we would expect. It's not what I think most of us would offer to a friend if they came to us and they were in the season that I just described of God why. If you had a friend who came to you, this keeps happening, I'm doing everything I know to do, why, why is this you know, my experience? I don't think we would tell them what we see here in Hebrews 12, and yet, this is what God says. And so this is what we need. And again, this is not a light, it's not a feel-good type of passage, it's not one of those verses that you see as a caption under a picture of someone's mountain vacation. You know what I'm talking about? 
You go on vacation, you have to, and you're a Christian, you have to post a picture from the balcony with your Bible in front and a cup of coffee. <laughs> and you have to caption a scripture. This is not one of those passages that you see there. Okay? It's not the one you see as you vacation in the mountains, but you know what Hebrews 12 is? It is the type of passage that has the power to sustain us in the valley. And the author of Hebrews, as he addresses this people, he wants to reframe for them how they think about the pain they were experiencing. And as they wrestled with the question of, if Jesus is better, then why are our lives getting worse? Three things he wants them to know about the pain in their life. This will be an outline for us. Three words, I'll start with the letter G. Gift, good, goal. He wants us to know these three things, and we'll see this here in Hebrews 12, that our pain is actually a gift from God. And you go, how? We'll talk about it. It is actually for our good, and ultimately, through our pain, God has a goal that he is producing something from the suffering in our lives that is cultivating something that could not come out of us in any other way. Gift, good, goal. Look with me at verse three. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. First question we need to answer to understand this is, who is the him that he's referring to in, in verse three? Look at it. Consider him, who is that? Jesus. And the way we know that is what we read earlier in verse one and two, what we talked about last week, because in verse one and two, he says that the way that we endure, run the race with endurance, is that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So the way we endure, the way we don't give up is to look away from our circumstances and we fix our eyes on Jesus. And in verse four, what he does is he compares the pain that they were experiencing with the pain that Jesus experienced. That's what he does. And he's not saying, when he says this, verse four, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. He's not saying, well, you think you have it bad? At least you haven't died. He's not saying, uh, you think you have it bad, at least you weren't sawn in two like the Old Testament saints we read about in chapter 11. And, and the reason why I know that is because he's not saying, don't give up on Jesus because no matter how bad it is, it could always be worse. I think my dad told me that before, right? That's how he encouraged me. Could always be worse. Well, sure, but this hurts, okay? That's not what he's saying. We know that because of one word in verse four. It's the word Yet. Look with me again. In your struggle against sin, so that's what he calls their, their pain, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is uh, not an attempt to dismiss or minimize their pain. He's actually an acknowledging it. And he wants to reframe for them how to understand what they were experiencing, to give them a right theology of pain that he calls their struggle against sin. If we want to understand this, we have to ask, answer this one question right here. Whose sin is he talking about here? When he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Whose sin do you think he's talking about? It's not theirs. It's not their sin. He's talking about the sin of others toward them. And how do we know that? Because again, verse three and verse four are connected. He compares their struggle with sin against Jesus' struggle with sin. And was Jesus sinful? No. Was he sinless? Yes, emphatically so. And if, if we can't answer that question, yes, then we're all wasting our time. Jesus was sinless and he compares their struggle with sin to Jesus' struggle with sin. So it can't be that he's talking about their sin. He's talking about the sin of others against them and the pain that they were experiencing as a result. 
And that's not because they don't have sin. Of course they do. He's already addressed that in verse one and two. He says, lay aside every weight, every sin that clings so closely and let's run the race with endurance. The Christian life, it's, it's a given that you have to wrestle with your own sin. If you don't, it will slow you down at best and it will uh, paralyze you at, at worst. It's a given to pursue your own sin. Again, he talked about that in verse one and two. What he's talking about here is what happens when you are doing verse one and two, when you are laying aside every weight and sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and getting rid of what clings so closely and you're looking to Jesus and fixing your eyes on the author and perfect of our faith. It's talking about the pain that happens when you're doing everything you know to do and still life hurts. And you go, God, why? This is the type of pain that he's addressing. Look with me at verse five. He says, and have you forgotten The exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. So this is where things go off the radar for most Christians. Because the Bible just said the Lord disciplines those he loves. And we have a hard time reconciling that. Our thought is, if God is good and God is loved, then why would he discipline us? That's the way we think. Because here's the thing. Um, God is good, God is loved, and why would he discipline us? The problem in this text is actually worse than that. Because remember, he's not just talking about their sin. We don't like the idea of of when we sin, God disciplining us, but we can actually understand that because we feel like we deserve it, which is another wrong way to think about following Jesus. Um, We can understand that. He's talking about the pain we experience from others when we're doing everything we know to do. And still he says, That's the hand of God at work in your life. Now, that's hard. That is a heavy reality to say, the Bible says unashamedly that even through the evil and and crazy things that happen uh, from men and women toward the lives of those who are following Jesus, even those things are somehow God at work in your life. Even that pain is somehow under God's sovereign rule and reign in your lives. We don't like that. Right? We don't like thinking about that. And I think the reason why we struggle with this so much is because we have a different picture of God in our minds than, than what we hear here and what we read here. And, they're, and it's incompatible. Right? What we, the way we think about God and what we just read about God is, is incompatible. And I've told you guys this before, but I didn't grow up in church. I came to faith when I was a junior in college. And when I say I didn't grow up in church, I mean like we didn't go to church. Now, we weren't antagonistic toward the gospel we, uh, or, or Jesus or the Bible or God or anything like that, um, but we just didn't go to church. And it wasn't, uh, not Christmas and Easter, nothing. Um, and so, when I came to faith in college, I felt like I was, I was behind. I had a lot of catching up to do. I didn't have any Awanas, no RAs or GAs, or I don't even know if that applies to what, what it applies to, because I wasn't there, right? I had no jewels in my crown. I've heard that's a thing. Maybe you can testify. No? Okay. We're, we're together, because I don't either. Um, I had a lot of catching up to do, so I just, when I came to faith, I just started reading the Bible. I just started reading God's word, hours and hours every day, and I would study the Bible by myself, and I got in Bible study groups, and I was just trying to learn and grow as much as I could, and not only did I not grow up in church, I have a terrible memory, um, and I mean terrible. Like, I don't remember a single thing about the day that I graduated high school. My wife was there uh, with me, we dated in high school, and she remembers the song we listened to as we left from that graduation. That just shows the dichotomy in my home and so you should pray for us, right? Um, I have a terrible memory, but there's one thing uh, from that season of life when I came to faith and I was in those Bible study groups that I will never forget because the Lord won't let me. 
I was in this group of guys and we were reading a passage like this that's just incompatible with the way you think about God. Not this passage, but a, a different one. Um, and I blurted out in my ignorance and in my arrogance, um, I blurted out, uh, that's not the God that I know and love. And, and the Lord has not let me forget that because what that revealed about me was the God that I knew and loved wasn't the God of the Bible. It was a God that I had created in my mind that was partially informed by what God says in his word, the parts that I liked, but mostly informed by, by my thoughts of what he should be like. And I shared that with you because, church, that's a dangerous place to be. Through the pages of scripture, God reveals to us who he is, his character and his nature, and the Bible says that we are created in his image, not the other way around. And so, whether we like it or not, God is who he reveals himself to be in the pages of scripture. It doesn't change who he is. This is why I think he says in verse five, he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then what he does is he quotes the Old Testament book of Proverbs here. Uh, and remember, these Christians all had a Jewish background. They knew the Old Testament. They knew Proverbs. They knew Proverbs 3. So the, the reality was what he's pointing them to is going, hey, you haven't forgotten it here, but you have forgotten it here. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he says this, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. And then he says this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. His point is what I said earlier, the discipline of the Lord is a gift. The discipline of the Lord is a gift. And if you're anything like me, your first thought when you see that come up on the screen is you go, it might be a gift, it ain't a gift that I want, you know? It's like your, your great aunt whomever who gives you a sweater every year for Christmas and you're like, have no use for this gift. That's where we file this. But here's the thing we need to understand. The word discipline here is not what we think it means. Uh, it doesn't mean punishment. It means training. And that's not me trying to cut the legs out from underneath the scriptures and soften it. I already told you that God is disciplining us in and through the, the evil atrocities that happen in our lives. So I'm not trying to soften the word of God. I'm just telling you what it says. The word discipline here is not the word for punishment. It's the word for training. It's the same word we read earlier in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for us for reproof and for correction and for what? Training in righteousness. Same word. Discipline is training. Look at it again, verse seven. It is for discipline or training that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And he says this, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without it, discipline, training, in which all have participated, all the real true sons and daughters of God, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is what makes our pain a gift. Because the Bible just said the discipline of the Lord is not punishment, but rather it is training. And you might say, well, that's not a gift I want either. Remember what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's trying to reframe for them, help them understand how they can uh, put together the pieces of, if Jesus is better, why is our life getting so much worse? And help them understand the pain that they were experiencing, give them a right perspective. He wants them to see this. The pain in their lives was not condemnation from God, but rather it's confirmation that they belong to him as sons. That's what he just said in verse seven and eight. He says that God disciplines or he trains the one he loves and the pain you are experiencing is actually evidence of God's love for you and a confirmation of the reality that you belong to him as a child. That's why it's a gift. And God is training you through the pain in your life. Not punishing you, training you. Hebrews 10, verse 11 says this, it'll be on the screen. It says, every priest stands daily at his service 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ, when the great high priest had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and when it says a single sacrifice, that wasn't because it wasn't costly, it was. It cost him everything, but it was that one sacrifice, his broken body and shed blood on the cross in our place. Through that one sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Listen to this, and here's what happens. That single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One of the most fundamental beliefs of Christianity is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has fully and completely satisfied the wrath and the anger of God on our behalf so that you and I will never stand underneath that. It is not up to us to pay the penalty for the punishment for our sin. That penalty has been paid in full if we put our faith in Jesus, which means this. On your very worst day, I wrote this sentence in my office this week and I literally started weeping because it's so unbelievable that if the power of the Spirit would allow you to just even get your arms around it a little bit, it'll change your life. That in your very, on your very worst day, and in your most rebellious moment, whatever that is, in that space, you can boldly run into the presence of your heavenly father without the slightest concern that he'll turn you away. Because your access to God, your acceptance to him has never been and will never be based on what you do, but based on what Christ has done for you. And your my access to God has been given to us as a gift to be received by grace through faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And so as a result, you could, if you could live a thousand years, if you could live a thousand years and you spent every waking moment of those thousand years working as hard as you could to obey God, to read his word, to pray, to commune with him, to draw near to him, to believe on him, you spent a thousand of those years doing that. At the end of those a thousand years, you would be no more accepted than you are the very first moment you believed. Because your acceptance isn't based on what you do. It's based on what Christ has done. And the author of Hebrews says the pain in your life is a gift because it isn't evidence that God has abandoned you. It is evidence that he has adopted you, that you belong to him. He says, what father doesn't discipline his son? And he's drawing us in this reality that, that God has not abandoned you. His discipline is, isn't to teach you what to do in order to earn your place as one of his children. His discipline is actually evidence that that is who you are. Look at verse seven. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly parents, discipline us for a short time as it seems best to them, but he, God, disciplines or trains us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Here's the second thing. Not only is the pain in our life a gift from God, but it's ultimately for our good. Just like we've seen several times in this book, the author of Hebrews uses an argument from what's called from lesser to greater, that he uses an earthly picture to to show us and to draw us up to what is true about Jesus all the more. And the illustration he uses is really simple. Let's not overanalyze it. He basically just says this about earthly parents. He says, good parents train their kids. That's what he's saying. And so why would we expect God to do anything else? Good parents don't let their kids do anything they want. 
What happens if you do that? Chaos, right? I've seen it in my own home, all right, to my shame. Um, no, and I, I think, and what he says here too is, he says they do what seems best to them in the moment, which means that earthly parents do it imperfectly, but they do whatever's best for them because ultimately they, they want what's best. They want what's good for their children. And again, he's saying, understand that so you can understand what God's doing in your life. And this illustration, I think, gets lost on some of us because somewhere along the way, parents begin to believe that it's more important to be friends with their kids than it is to train them up into maturity. Um, and I get how that could sound, and you go, man, your oldest kid's seven, you have no idea. I, I don't, right? I, I want my kids to like me. I really do. But I, I also know that God's call in my life as a father is not to be my kid's friend. It is to have a higher degree of love for them than I do for my own comfort or for theirs in the moment because I know what's best for them and I see what's good and if I see them going in a direction that's not good, I'm going to stop it even if it hurts them in the moment, even if there's tears involved. Why? Because I love them and I want what's best. Um, Halloween's a great example. If my kids had their way, they would still be eating candy and no one would have slept. At least that would, that would have been their effort. They would have tried to do whatever they could to never sleep and to just eat the candy till it's gone, right? But you know what we did Tuesday night? Went trick-or-treating, came home, we had some candy. We had a couple pieces, and then there were some tears involved, and we went and brushed our teeth, and we went to bed. Why? Because I love them. And, and honestly, that's the idea. And I know my kids, and I do what seems best to me. And so I have a kid who, if, when he gets in trouble, he would rather get 10 spankings than me send him to his room. Because he just got FOMO. He just he didn't want to miss out on anything. He's like, just spank me. I don't care. I don't want to miss out. You know, don't send me alone. Don't make me be sit alone. And I know that about him. And so I consider it as I, as I go, what's best for him? Because you need to learn your lesson, right? And I have another kid. If you send him to his room, he goes, okay. You know, he doesn't care. Because I'll sit here forever. And I, and I know that about them. And, the, and that, that's what he's saying. He goes, earthly parents do the best they can to, to raise their kids up into maturity. How much more your heavenly father because we respected them for what they're trying to do. Look at what God's trying to do. And he says in verse 10, we do what seems best. God, church, always disciplines us for our good. He doesn't do what's best and just, man, hope he's not messing up. If you're a parent in this room, you have been to the spot in your life where you go, man, I hope this is the right thing. I hope that, I, that this is what's best for them. God has never had that thought. He knows what's best for us. Always he disciplines for us disciplines us for our good. And so that's the answer to our question. Why would God who loves us discipline us? The answer is because he loves us. Because he loves, loves us, he disciplines for our, our, for our good. If you've been around church, this idea probably brings to mind Romans eight twenty eight, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I think we can kind of shortchange what this is actually saying to us and just think that God just kind of all the bad things that happen in our life, God has no power or control over them, but what he can do is he can make them good. That's how we think about this. But remember, this isn't just talking about the pain we experience because of our sin. He's talking about the pain we experience even at the hands of the sin of others, right? So what he's saying is this includes even the pain we experience as a result of living in a broken world and God in his infinite sovereignty and his never-ending love for us is working good in our lives even through that. Pain is a gift, it's for our good. Here's the third one. There is a goal. Look at verse 10 again. For they discipline us for a short time, that's earthly parents, as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good. And here's the goal, that we may share in his holiness. 
that God is doing something in us, making us like Jesus. He says this, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The point is that God's discipline of us is not about punishment, it's about transformation. That he's cultivating something in us, that there is a goal, he says, that we may share in his holiness. And this is what I mean by, I think we can kind of undersell Romans eight twenty eight and make it just about God coming along and fixing things. Piper says it this way, he says, God is not just the ER doc who when you show up with lacerations, he can sew you up better than brand new. He said he's sometimes that, sometimes he's the surgeon who's actually the one who inflicts pain as he makes the incision because he loves you enough to go get the cancer that's in you. There is a goal in the discipline of the Lord because he's cultivating in us holiness, Christ-likeness. He's trying to make us into something that we had no shot of becoming on our own and God is willing to kick the crutches out from underneath us of our idolatry as we lean on uh, our sin. He's willing to kick it out from underneath us and cause us pain to force us to press our roots deep into the soil of reliance on God. Even though it'll hurt, and this takes faith, it's why chapter 12 comes after chapter 11 where he just said, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, all these Old Testament saints who through faith have been enduring this life, trusting in the discipline and the love of their God. It takes faith to endure because everything in us, when life is not going the way we want it to, when life hurts, what do we do? We turn to God and we go, you must not love me. If life is like this and following you, you must not be good, you must not love me, or you must be punishing me for my sin. Jesus must not be good enough. That's what happens in us. But what the Bible is saying here is that through the pain in your life, God is producing something in you that would not grow in any other way. And he loves you enough not to give you everything you want because he knows what that would do to you. You'd be a week later almost still eating candy and, and unwilling to go to sleep when he goes, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We trust him. He teaches us to trust him through the pain in our lives. He says in verse seven, it's for discipline that you have to endure. Church, the Bible is saying to you this morning, if you are hurting, brother, sister, if you are hurting, God has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned you. The pain in your life is evidence that he has brought you in and that he will never let you go. He's cultivating something in you. There's goal in your pain. It's for your good. The discipline is part of the process of him planting something in you. He calls in verse 11, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Colossians says that Jesus will one day present us to the Father holy and blameless. God is cultivating righteousness in us and he uses the pain in our lives to do it. The question we have to answer here is, who is this true for? Who is this true for? Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Say it. Trained by it. So God is doing this work of training us, but the peaceful fruit of righteousness is only yielded in the life of those who are trained by it. Which means that there is a way for you, Christian, to live in your pain, kicking and streaming to such a degree that the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness doesn't come up in you. It's what he mentions earlier, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We can regard the discipline of the Lord lightly or we can live in such a way that it doesn't yield that fruit in us if we're not trained by it. We're gonna talk about that more next week. But there's a way for us to grow bitter, calloused, 
that when God kicks the crutch out from underneath us and we fall into the soil and he intends for us to plant deep roots into the soil of reliance on God, there's a way for us to grow bitter, callous, and we stay shallow. And we get burnt up by the heat of summer, we get frostbit by the cold of the winter. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. I wanna show you one of the primary ways I think we miss out on the training of God. Look at verse 11. The moment all discipline seems what? Painful rather than pleasant. The Bible is acknowledging that the discipline of the Lord, it actually hurts. And I think one of the ways that we miss out on what God's trying to do in us is by pretending that it doesn't. How many Christians do you know? How you doing? Great, man. Things are great. If they are, praise God. But if they're not, why are you pretending? The Bible's honest. Why aren't we? Right? This is one of the primary ways we live in our pain where we don't sink deep roots in there. Sometimes life stings. Sometimes the pain is so unimaginable and unbearable that you you can't understand how God could possibly work it together for your good. Sometimes it's just wave after wave and blow after blow. Some days everything's fine, but you're just sad. And you don't know why. You can't point your finger to it. Life is difficult, right? Sometimes it just stings. Can I tell you something? Regardless of where you are on that spectrum, you do not have to pretend that you are all right on the outside if you are dying on the inside. In fact, I'll say it stronger, you shouldn't. Because when you live your life that way, you completely rob anybody around you of the opportunity of doing what Hebrews 10 says, that we would consider one another how we might stir one another up toward love and good deeds. We don't know that you're hurting. And so you're never stirred up. And you keep going down this road, you harden your heart, you keep having these shallow soil, shallow soil you're bitter. God, why? No one loves me, no one cares about me, but you're, you're pretending and you're hiding and eventually you give up. And the book of Hebrews is about enduring. It's about not doing that. It's about pressing on because Jesus is better. So if you're in a season of life where life isn't particularly painful, praise God. Praise God. Allow that to create in you gratitude and awareness and worship of God's kindness to you. But if you're hurting, please don't pretend that everything is fine. Don't pretend everything's fine. Also, don't resist what God might be trying to do in you. He's trying to cultivate something in you. He's trying to produce something in you. And it doesn't make sense sometimes because life hurts so bad. I get it. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. But the pain in your life is not evidence that God has abandoned you. It's not. It is proof that he loves you, that he's adopted you as a son and a daughter. It is a gift. It is for your good. And there is a goal. It is producing in you what only God can do. That we might, he says, share in his holiness. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing and respond together to God. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, God, for easy passages. And we thank you for the hard ones. We thank you that you give us what we need, that you speak to us. And so I pray that for our church in this moment, God, if if someone is hurting, would you give them the courage to not pretend? Would you give them the courage to to quit leaning on those crutches, God, and to trust you, to rest deeply, that we might sink our roots deep into the soil of reliance on you, God, because you alone have what we need. Help us as we sing. Would you be worshiped in our hearts above all else, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.